Hey, 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 you. Yeah, you. Put down your coffee and crank up your volume. You're entering the green side. Now here's your host, Taylor Mooney. Welcome to the Green Side Podcast. This is your host, Taylor Mooney. I got my father, Bob Mooney. How are you doing today? Hey, how's it going, son? Good. Thanks for joining me. So you're telling sure. me you're telling me a uh, a story earlier where you actually were on the radio at our home uh, radio station today. What was uh, what were you doing on the radio? Uh, I was on the A4WHS AM here in Louisville, Kentucky, and they were asking for some stories pertaining to uh, the Kentucky Derby horse race. And years ago, I worked for a company where we did staffing for the racetrack, Churchill Downs. And during my tenure there, they had asked if I would like to work a restroom. And I wasn't sure what they were talking about. I sure didn't want to clean toilets. What it was, it was on Millionaire's Row, where the rich and famous go to watch the Derby, away from all the peasants of the (laughs) infill. And uh, they have uh, staff in the restroom, and you're wearing uh, like a coat and tails, like a white tuxedo top with the Churchill Downs insignia on it. And as people come into the restroom, you offer them a towel or some cologne or a mint after they finish their business. And so the area which uh, I was assigned to, obviously the people who have tables closest to that restroom, there's about 12 races during that day culminating in the Kentucky around 5 p.m. And uh, so after each race, about every 45 minutes, you'll have a big rush into the restroom because obviously people are – for taking in libations and needed to use the restroom. So there are certain people that obviously keep coming to your restroom. So throughout the day, I met people like Smokey Robinson and uh, Jerry Jones, the owner of the Cowboys. Uh, what's probably stood out more than anyone was uh, Kid Rock. He was attending uh, with his buddy Travis Tritt. And um, so as the day went on, uh, he got drunker and drunker and drunker. And I'd say by about the fifth or sixth race, he was stumbling into the restroom. And so I finally got the nerve up to ask him for uh, his autograph. Had my derby program there. And I'd already got several autographs that day. Eli, Eli uh, Manning, Peyton Manning, uh, Jerry Jones, uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. So I went up to Kid Rock after he finished his business, handed him a towel to dry his hands. And I said, hey, from one Bob to another, could I get your autograph? And uh, he said, sure. So he stumbles over, takes the pen, leans into the counter. So just making conversation, I said, hey, I've always been a big fan of your music. My wife's a country music fan. I know your last album had a lot of country on it. Uh, I've I've even turned my wife on to you. So he leaned into me, puts his arm on my shoulder, says, Bob, let me give you some advice. Keep turning your wife on. (laughs) Ever since that, every time we see him on TV, I'm like, honey, I got personal marital advice from Kid Rock. (laughs) (laughs) Which is uh, is a memorable experience for sure. Right, which is really where someone should go for proper marital advice. And you got Dr. Phil on TV, but then you can have Kid Rock. You can provide exactly. only Kid Rock. <laughs> yeah, only drunk Kid Rock can provide the type of perspectives necessary uh, to have proper marital advice. And uh, well, I will say it was good advice to keep turning your wife on. You know, you can never go wrong there. You can't see. What I'm saying maybe he has a second career going. Phil, Dr. Phil has his show. It might be getting might. a little played out. It just might. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I remember you met another star. Uh, or you had an interaction, at least at a concert, with country music star Jared Neiman when he first released his song. This is back in 2010, I believe, right? 
Yeah, yeah, it was uh, when uh, his, actually it was the actual day that his hit Lover Lover hit number one on the country music billboard charts. And uh, he was performing here at a small club in Louisville called Joe's Older Than Dirt, a little outdoor venue. So it was you know, a very intimate setting. The crowd just right there in front of him as he's performing. And he took a little break. At the time, uh, you were deployed to Afghanistan. I had a chance to talk with him a minute and get a picture with him. And so I mentioned that my son was a Marine uh, deployed to the Helmand province of Afghanistan in combat. He asked me your name. I told him Taylor Mooney. So unbeknownst to me, he went up on the stage, and the next song he was going to do was he started out saying, I got up this morning, got a call from my manager to tell me that this next song, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, uh, just hit number one on the country billboard charts today. And I'd like to dedicate this song to uh, Taylor Mooney over in Afghanistan and all the other veterans over there fighting for us. And he uh, went into Lover Lover. So well, that was pretty neat. You know? That is pretty, that's pretty, that's and, pretty uh, nice of him. I know you and I, we attended a lot of concerts together down on the river during 4th Street Live and the uh, Riverfront concerts at 4th of July and stuff like that, the free country concerts. So at the time, I was wearing your dog tags that you gave me before you deployed. And I remember I held him up at that concert. I covered your social security number so that wouldn't be in the in the picture. And, right. and took a picture of him performing. Was it was like you were there in spirit with us, you know, floating up the dog tags. Right, that was kind of neat. Yeah, I mean, what, what's it like? I mean, I, obviously, I I know my perspective of things of being a marine deployed, but I think a perspective that is often undervoiced is what it's like to be the loved one or a parent of a marine that's deployed. I mean, what I mean, just in general, what do you, what is that like? Well, you know, from from the family side, um, you know, the the correspondence that we may have during the couple of times during a six or eight month deployment that you are able to either call home or or Skype with someone, you know, that those are real treats. And you know, you've also told me about a lot of downtime between a lot of action. Uh, but you know, from the family's perspective back home, when you've got a loved one deployed during wartime, it's you know, it's a it, it's a thought process that you're always in danger 24-7 and that, you know, you're obviously in a part of the world that is not fond of Americans, especially military, and, you know, you're trying to sleep and live somewhere where people around you want you to die. So it's a little tough on family back home, you know. Uh, I know we have just moved into a house with an in-ground pool, and that particular summer, I didn't go swimming once. You know, my wife would say, don't you want to go swimming? You know, kids are having a pool party today. And, uh, I just I, I told her I said I just don't want to have fun thinking Taylor could be dying right now, and right. I had this constant fear that this black car would be pulling up into my driveway and and a chaplain and another serviceman would be coming up to the door to bring me the bad news. You know, and you'd hear stories back home. Uh, you'd see stories on the news. I saw one mother who she said the car pulled into her driveway and they come up to the door and the husband's trying to answer the door and she's got her back to the door and crying. And she thought if she didn't answer the door, she wouldn't have to know and it wouldn't be true. Right. So things like that are constantly playing on your mind, you know, and it's, it's tough back home, you know, but you don't want to voice that because you feel like, well, I don't want to, you know, complain about it being tough on me. He's the one over there fighting, you know, but it is tough back home. And I I think that's something that as a service member, Especially one, you know, is the infantry or four deployed. And, you know, this was 2010 Helmet Province during the surge. It was very much still in the media because things were rocking and rolling. And you know that it's on the news, but you don't want to unnecessarily 
burden your loved ones with with what's happening. So I think most people now there's always a few weirdos who like want to show off or have some weird insecurity problem and you need to let everyone back home know they're in combat. And I've heard people on the phone say stuff, which half the time is exaggerated or not true. But you know, anyways, you're very conscientious of not putting the the reality of combat onto your loved ones. So I was always very much like, yeah, you know, normal day, we're bored. And, and and that was certainly true a lot of the time. But I wouldn't mention, oh, yeah, we had a firefight today. Or, you know, so-and-so got shot today. You wouldn't, you know, so-and-so got blown up. Or, you know, hey, I stepped on a um, an IED that didn't go off. You know, you wouldn't say stuff like that to your loved ones because you do know that they're probably thinking of. And, and it's interesting you said that because I know the moments that I'm safe and I know the moments that, I am in an action, and so I know when to, I guess not worry, but I know when something's happening, and you just, for seven months, have no idea it could be happening now, or it could have already happened, because yeah. you won't find well, it out. We found out several days after, uh, you know, the vehicle you were driving was blown up by a roadside bomb, and, you know, uh, there were other persons in the vehicle who lost uh, limbs. And, uh, you know, at, at, the, at the time, it appeared you came out unscathed, although you did have a brain uh, uh, injury from that. But at the time, you were back on the battlefield, I believe, in the next day or two. But we found out a week later, and, and uh, you know, that was tough. But we knew you were okay. But still, in those moments, you know, you hear about, uh, you know, I want to say kids, because I always say, you know, when you go to boot camp, you, you leave a boy and you come back a man. But still, you know, 19-year-old quote-unquote kid, is over there experiencing things that I will never know in my entire life, you know, or never see in my life, you know. At 19, I moved away to Daytona Beach and was watching wet t-shirt contests down at pool decks, you know, and right. not seeing my friends and, this, and this different associates getting blown to pieces. So it, it's a different world for sure. You know, you just, uh, you hope for one of those uneventful deployments for your child. You know, someone that's trained in combat obviously probably wants to see some action. So... You want you have two different goals, yeah, right? Sure. Uh, you want to you want to hear that your son came back and didn't see any action, you know, you know. And I know you guys lost, I think, ten guys in your unit. You know, one of them near thirty days before you guys came home. You know, we read blogs on the internet about, and we looked at that kid's dad's Facebook that you know he was saying, "Hey, thirty days till you come home." You know, we've got our hotel reservations, which we also had our hotel reservations near campus in North Carolina to see you guys come home. And I just think about the torment of, you know, that their son came home too, but in a box, you know, as you continue to grow and get older and experience things in life, you know, their life stopped at 19. You know? Right. So, it's, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's tough to think about what, uh, all they have left is memories, you know? Yeah. It's actually an interesting fact from my deployment. The vast majority, I don't know the number, like seven out of ten, maybe six out of ten. I'm not sure, but we're all actually twenty years old, all born in the '90s, like me, old twenty-year-old Lance Corporal. So just kind of an interesting trend. But yeah, I th- I think obviously being in war is the toughest part, you know, without a doubt. But there is something to be said about loved ones back home and 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 dealing with that burden, the constant not knowing. Like I said, I obviously know if I'm okay or not because I'm me. But, um, but yeah, for some of those, and when it comes to Marines dying, I always felt like, of course, you don't want it to happen, obviously, that goes without saying. But I always felt, me personally, I always felt worse 
for the loved ones they left behind because, you know, as a Marine, as a, as someone's truly a warrior, they, this is something they signed up for. And like you said, you desire to do your job, which means you desire to be in combat. And it sounds weird to people who haven't done it to, to want to wish for that, but, but you feel like, well, it's happening anyways. And if it's going to happen, I want to be the one in it. I want to be the person to, to solve the problem. So well, you I know, never... I remember, you know, not long after you came home, you know, you told me a story about a time when you were uh, carrying another soldier and there was, you know, bullets hitting the sand around your feet. And you said in that moment, that was the freest you ever felt in your life. And it's hard to comprehend and understand, you know, what that means, you know, but but I, I do understand it, you know, on a certain level. <laughs> yeah, the, I know that's what you trained and signed up for. Yeah, yeah, I remember this we were talking about. I when I was running with a guy with uh, was in the front of a stretcher, and a um, yeah, I mean a Taliban machine gunner was shooting at us, and he was tracing us in, which means what it sounds like. He's he's seeing he is seeing his rounds impact. And he's walking his rounds into you. I mean, luckily, a buddy of mine took care of him before he walked him all the way in on us. So that sounds very serious. But the funny thing is, I think for a lot of guys, I mean, I think if you are processing things, I this is my personal opinion again, but if you're processing things correctly and you have clear mind doing your job, you know, you're not you're not really even thinking about that. So I remember my, my thoughts during that moment weren't about the seriousness of the moment. I remember that my M4 was on a one-point sling. So it was dangling down by my side, and I usually kept it dangling on my right hip. But from running, it had... Uh, from running with a stretcher, it had come around to the front. and was bashing me in the shins with every step I took. And I just kept thinking about, man, this really hurts. I'm really, like, blooding my shins up. Like, uh, And I thought, this is how I go out, blooding my shins up. Like, It wasn't like the fact that I was going to die. It was like, I was more concerned that... Man, if I'm gonna go out, I'm gonna go out somewhere cool, not having my own rifle bash me in the shins. What a lame way to go! Like, I was just like having these ridiculous <laughs> thoughts of not being concerned about the actual going out itself, but about the shin bashing. But then, yeah, after I think I wrote an essay years ago in school about once we made it behind the hill and behind safety to wait for the medevac. Looking back on the ambush, which was a pretty epic ambush at the time, with you know mortars and machine guns and RPGs, and we ended up retreating. It was so bad, but. I just remember, yeah, I think a lot of guys have that feeling. You look back, and it's it's very freeing. It's very liberating. It's I mean, you have, all the, of course, all the adrenaline rushing, all the chemicals, say the neurological side. But you feel the most purpose-filled that you probably ever felt. And if you know, you're someone who volunteered to do this job, you obviously had the inclination to want to do it. So you finally feel like you're fulfilling your life purpose. Like I've like I nothing will get better. Or nothing could top this feeling of accomplishment. It was the most fulfilled. I think most people in life, if you have any basic ambition or wants, you know, you're always thinking about the next step or the next, you know, the next thing, you know, degrees and family and kids and what your kids are doing and their degrees and their family and life and houses and boat. And in that moment, I was just in that moment fulfilled. And I think a lot of guys miss that. And that's one of my main points I make about vets transitioning into the civilian world is they lose that sense of purpose. And I think I have counseled so many guys 
all over the board from severe PTSD to just doing some schoolwork. But whenever someone's actually struggling, if you really keep talking to me down to it, it's they lack purpose. They once were in this amazing role that was very purpose filled. And now they're, you know, doing whatever. Nothing compares. That's a huge problem. I just constantly, I mean, with everybody, everyone I know that struggled has voiced that concern. And that's what I've seen stories, you know, news magazines on TV and things like that, where a lot of these guys who were in combat, there's programs where they get back together and just go on a camping trip together. And there's such camaraderie. And I remember seeing a a post that you had made one time uh, talking to a guy that you were over there with, and 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 it was like you guys longed for that, and and one of you said, you know, it was almost simpler then. We knew what our mission was, and we did it. You know, it was almost simpler than than what we're dealing with back home. You know, with the reality of family and life in general. You know, I think that's a lie. I think that is a lie. No, what you're saying is true, but I think a lie that veterans get are active duty service members, especially those in combat, which is what I usually think of when I think of that because that was my community, was a combat infantry community. But there's this idea that, you know, if you can do this, if you can do combat, nothing else will ever be as difficult or challenging. You've mastered the most difficult thing there is in life. And that plays into your point about having simpler times. I think it is a very simple way of living, in in the terms we're talking about, of just life and death uh, combat is oddly simple in, 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 its, in its romantic sense and this beauty of it. But real life isn't simple. It's 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 messy and complicated. That sounds really weird or counterintuitive to say compare combat to real life, but it's, I, I think it's true. Real life is much more complicated. Yeah. And that's a problem a lot of guys have with because they came out thinking, hey, life will never be as difficult as carrying a wounded marine and a machine gun fire to safety. Or having to pull a trigger on someone. It'll never. If I can do all that and carry all the heavy gear and do all these things, and for many guys over and over again, I can master anything. And that's not true. I mean, it's yeah. it's a myth that isn't true. And so you get told that, and then you're also kind of reinforced with the idea that well, if you come back and you struggle because you know you're trying to find purpose and life is complicated, well, then you must be broken. You must be a a broken veteran. You must have PTSD or must be just broken in a general sense of the word. When that's not true, human beings struggle with life, with relationships and girlfriends and boyfriends and marriages and mortgages. Everybody struggles and you have to learn how to fit in with society. So one, it's not the most difficult thing you'll ever do in a weird way. It's just a different, it's a different style of difficult. Well, I almost liken it to uh, the drug addict who says they're always chasing that first high that was like that first euphoria that was the best buzz they ever had. And, you know, I, the analogy there is that, you know, that, that moment that, that we described that you felt freer than you ever felt or that you've accomplished the most difficult thing you ever accomplished. And you are, you're always trying to get back there and you're never going to get back there in civilian life, you know, and it's just a moment in your life like many moments. Right, and it's gone, and, I, and I, I've had yeah. to t- I've had to tell guys, it's gone forever, and you need to accept that. You need to fully accept it because so many guys daydream, think about, oh, I'm going to go be a contractor, you know, for like the Blackwater and the Triple Canopy. Well, Blackwater is not Academy, but Triple Canopy and all these types of military contractors, which for those who don't know, is kind of like a they hate they hate this word, but it's kind of like being a mercenary, but they don't like mercenary because they only fight on U.S. contracts. But you get the idea. 
Um, right. And so they, whatever it is, they, they chase that. And I've had to tell guys it's over with, but you can still find purpose. You can retool, you can retool your mind, and and keep your warrior mindset, and engage something like school or a trade, or a cause or something. And yes, it might not be so satisfying, or it might not have the physiological rush, chemical rush of adrenaline being released, but you can pour yourself into something else. You know, if you're really that concerned about your brothers and sisters in arms, go back to school, get a degree, and go and try to solve the VA issue or medical care or, you know, find or work for a nonprofit. You know, you can find purpose outside of a rifle because I don't care who you are or how long you serve for. You have to give it up one day. The Commandant of the Marine Corps, who can be in for 40 years, has to retire at some point. And then he has to also decide what he's going to do and be after the Marine Corps. And I think me and you have talked about this. I I see a problem with, I call it the I am a Marine mentality because I always thought of myself as Taylor who works for the Marine Corps. Like me, I am not a Marine. A Marine's what I do for a job for a bit. But so many guys get their identities wrapped up and being a Marine, and that's all they are. And to come out of that into the into the civilian world, they want to hold on to it. Well, you know, I, I agree with what you're saying. I think guys like yourself have proven that, you know, there is life after combat. And uh, I guess it's just, you know, like all of us in life, we have to find our way and find our purpose, you know. And uh, some find it through family and kids, some find it through career. But uh, you just have to find... Uh, what your what your purpose is and gravitate to that because like you said you're not you know that combat life <laughs> once it's gone it's gone it's a fleeting moment that will never return right you know? and, the, and you really wouldn't want it to return you know right I mean so. I've only done two deployments and only one was combat the other one was on a ship and Olympia. yeah yeah and there's you know there's people who have done much much more than me and the more you go back and do these things the harder it is to transition and let that go. So I can fully acknowledge that. However, it, you can't go through life and use that as an excuse. I mean, I see so many guys use it as an excuse for everything, for have, being a terrible boyfriend or husband, you know, for doing poorly at work, for not wanting to go to school or learn a trade. It's like, well, uh, all these reasons, oh, they don't get it, you know, civilians. and that's, You know, well, guess what, man? That's the world you live in. So yeah. so adapt or die. Adapt and overcome like you did in the military. You need, to, you need to get over yourself because guess what? You're now the new guy as a civilian. It's like you're a new private in the military. Well, you're out of the military. Now you're a new private at life. And you better find that same hunger and will to succeed and prove yourself that you did when you were in. Um, and Absolutely. just, Absolutely. And so, yeah, and so many guys just don't, and and it, and it's and it's frustrating because you can see they have the raw materials to succeed, or they have the raw materials of the intellect, but they don't want to apply it. They'd rather sit at home and and booze, play with their dog. And blame everybody else. Because, like, no one's going to give you anything in life. You know, the whole veteran thing, that's great. 
It's a great thing about you, but it's not the only thing about you. That's kind of my take on that. Do you have anything, any closing thoughts on the veteran issue? I'm going to transition into a quick game, if your game. Well, no. I mean, I think we adequately covered, you know, the topic. And, uh, you know, I just, uh, um, I think just, you know, to reiterate, just families back home, you know, we have it tough too, you know. So a lot of people don't think of uh, the loved ones back home, and you know, we're 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 in uh, we're in combat with you in some ways, you know. But uh, uh, it's selfish to to even voice it because you're actually in combat. So we just keep quiet and muddle along. And and I uh, tell you though, that day that uh, that your son comes home. And you're standing in that gym, and you see him walk in. All these guys with these buzzed heads, and you can pick out your son out of 250 guys. <laughs> it's as good a feeling as the day he was born. You know, it's a good feeling to know that you can hold you and hug you again. It's a real special moment. Right. I think what you said is important. That it is difficult in the family, but it is also important to make the the distinction that obviously the people in combat have it tougher, and that might seem like a weird thing to to emphasize. However, there is a big problem. And a lot of veterans can't stand it. There's like these bumper stickers that like, you know, a lot of times it's wives, dependents that will get these things. And it'll say, Marine wife, toughest job in the Corps. And that is a right. th- that is a bumper sticker that cannot be more ridiculed, loathed, and hated than that because it's not the toughest job in the Corps. The guy that's actually in the Corps has a toughest job. So it, you make the important distinction that it isn't, harder it isn't worse but it is certainly challenging and is a kind of a stickers that said things like it's up to god to judge bin laden it's up to the, to the <laughs> marines to arrange the meeting <laughs> right yeah those are those are much more festive yeah right um okay well, we're gonna finish on a light-hearted note this one is a game of who okay. of who said it. And you gotta tell me who said this quote, Donald Trump or Eric Cartman of South Park. Oh boy. And the, I will say for anyone listening, this was not prearranged. I didn't know this you was gonna do this. I this don't know is, what you're gonna say. Yeah. Well these, go ahead. I think these are all um children appropriate. I don't think anyone has to cover their ears in here right now. <laughs> so the first one, the only kind of people I went counting my money are little short guys that wear yarmulkes every day. Is that the quote? That's the quote, yeah. Who said it, Eric Cartman or Donald Trump? All right, we lost it there for a second. Now you're back on the line. So I'm going to tell you the quote again. Remember, the game is who said it, Donald Trump or Eric Cartman? All right. And this quote is, you know, maybe the, the phone call got knocked. Because NSA was listening, doesn't appreciate this yeah, contest. It could be. Yeah, I didn't right. think of that. <laughs> we'll see. What, we'll see what happens. The only kind of people I want counting my money are little short guys that wear yarmulkes every day. <laughs> you know, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Donald Trump said it, but I'm going to say Eric Cartman. Eh, incorrect. It was Donald J. Trump. Oh, wow! Wow. <laughs> okay. All right. Next one. Sorry, losers and haters. But my IQ is one of the highest, and you all know it. Uh, I'm going to say Donald Trump on that one. That was Donald Trump. All right. Next one. She got schlonged. <sighs> I'll say Eric Cartman on that one. That was also Donald Trump. 
I'm starting to see a pattern here. I'm starting to see a pattern, but I'm trying to throw you off, so we'll see. <laughs> Last one. I think this is easy, but we'll see. I have a great relationship with the blacks. Uh, let's say Donald Trump. Yeah, it was Donald Trump. Okay, so every one of those was Donald Trump, but <laughs> but it's hard to know sometimes. You don't know who's going to say. It. You. But uh, you know, the quotes could be attributed to either one, and who would be surprised? So. Yes, that one was that one was more was a little easy because well, they're all the same thing. All right, I'm going to give you a different Trump game because that one was too easy. Well, they're all Trump, so it wasn't fair. This is the last one. We'll do a few of these, and you have to tell me which. Ruler said this quote, and you have four options each time Trump, Hitler, Mussolini, or Stalin. All right. Now, to be clear, I'm not a Trump basher. I just Googled these things and I find them entertaining, nonetheless. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you, can, you can like, dislike being different to somebody and still find the game entertaining. Absolutely. Okay. I agree. Next one I'll turn my life. Into a masterpiece. Um, just to seem provocative, uh, let's say Hitler, Mussolini. Uh, who? Fun fact: You know what U.S. President Mussolini was very fond of, and what President was very fond of Mussolini? No, I don't. FDR. Oh, really? When they were both professors, I think one, both of them or one of them edited the other one's book or, review, or reviewed the other one's book. Oh, really? And they Interesting. Were, which goes to my theory, which I can talk about another time, of why FDR is one of the worst presidents in American history yeah. and the closest thing we've ever had to like an autocratic ruler or to a dictator. I'm not saying he was one. I'm saying it's the closest yeah, well, thing. We've, I'm saying it's the closest the thing we've had of, to it. Of a, many, many years of a, of a downward spiral, I do believe. Yeah, we did, he's only present to break Washington's tradition of two terms and serve four, on top right, of all exactly. his expanding of the government and his internment of Japanese, and he did a lot of terrible. His New Deal was a complete failure. He well, was yeah, propped up by the war. A huge entitlement right. program, after so, program after program. Yeah. yeah, that's a whole other conversation. So. Exactly. <laughs> the world here's the, this is the next quote. The world belongs to the man with guts. Uh Hitler. That was Hitler in March nineteen thirty six. Hitler made this comment after the successful German reoccupation of the Rhineland. Good people don't go into government. Uh, let's say Trump. That was Trump, and that was your last one. All right, I want to thank you for agreeing to play the game with me. I still think the Cartman one was best, although none of the answers were Cartman. Sure. Whoever set up the online quiz did me a disservice, and I did not vet it ahead of time as a spur-of-the-moment <laughs> thing. But still, nonetheless, entertaining to think of Cartman singing some of these quotes. All right, well, I want to thank you for being with me on my podcast today. We'll probably have you back Absolutely. on in the future. Glad to do it. We'll do some segments of um, which can help help the people, help the fans fix their cars or do an auto body segment since that is your trade. Yeah, perhaps we can discuss that on another occasion and see what I can uh, expound. It might be interesting at that time. Yeah, might save somebody some money. So I want to thank my dad, Bob Mooney, for being my podcast today. And with that, you've been listening to the Greenside Podcast.